Hi everyone, welcome to the next episode of the Bay Street Capital Holdings podcast titled How Do You Do It and Why Should I Care? This series aims to highlight women doing amazing work in various industries. So today we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Barbara Belk, who is Acting Director of Equity, Inclusion and Diversity for Northwest Region at Kaiser Permanente Northwest. Hi Dr. Belk, how are you? Hi Leila, I am well and you can call me Babs. Of course. Okay. So let's start off with a quick introduction then as to who you are and um, perhaps an answer to the main question of the podcast, which is how do you do it and why should I care? Sure. So everyone has their own personal journey with challenges and insecurities. And as humans, none of us are exempt. And so I want to bring the the human part of um, growth in the context of our work, as well as the work of the work itself. Um, and my journey is a little bit, you know, uh, unique. It's my own journey. And I think it influences what happened and how I approached my professional journey. So my life in three parts is briefly survival and then healing and then growth. So uh, I'll take just a minute to give you that back story. Um, my survival portion of the journey was around uh, growing up in uh, pretty intense poverty in a, a very rural part of the United States, uh, in the Plains States, in farm community, um, had food insecurity. My father hunted for our food. Um, and my four sisters and I experienced physical and emotional abuse. And uh, I experienced housing insecurity as well as medical um, insecurities and so forth. So I had a lot of psychological insecurity and trauma. And as I uh, left home, I sort of lived this imposter syndrome that many of you might have heard about. Um, The second part of the journey though was healing. And it was so critical and that's the courage that I mustered up because things got so tough in a lot of ways. Um, that I reached out for help and support. And then the the latter part of it is growth. And that was all about self-acceptance and and true joy in the journey. So um, in in that uh, experience, there was no clear pathway um, professionally to get out of where I was because um, where I grew up, women were meant to get married by the time you were 18 to a farmer. not go to college. It was not acceptable for women to go to college. And um, and that was not something that I wanted. So uh, people thought I was crazy. Um, and I wanted to get out of there, but I had l- very little knowledge of options. I could be a farmer's wife, a teacher, or a hairdresser. So college was my way out. I left when I was 17 years old. I saved up $250. I had uh, bought a car for myself and I had a suitcase of clothes and I was terrified because I went to college on work study and Pell Grants and jobs and I didn't even know how to study. So it was a rough first couple of years. But I found my way to becoming, uh, my undergrad was in education And so I became an educator and I left that part of the country and went to New Orleans where I taught uh, school. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. and became a corporate trainer uh, for bank managers and a call-in crisis counselor and did adult educational um, school. I trained people in management of all things. So I was two chapters ahead of (laughs) the people who were taking the courses and then I moved into, uh, was in New York and I managed a battered women's shelter. 
and had the opportunity to influence political change, policy change for medical and police force in diagnosing and treating um, people who were um, physically abused by their partners. And I even had the opportunity to design and teach a de-escalation technique with police versus an aggressive approach. And then I went to San Francisco Bay Area for my doctorate in clinical psychology, um, which I was terrified uh, the entire first year because I thought they'd figure out that I had no idea um, what I was doing and that they were going to kick me out. And then I realized that I actually was really good at it and kind of top of my class and all that jazz because I was so excited and, and inspired. That's awesome. So um, what an amazing journey you've sort of relayed to me. I'm just curious. So what was the pivotal moment of, of your life or the culmination of experiences that inspired you to join the DE&I space? Well, it's interesting because um, right after grad school, I got a great opportunity to go to uh, take a job in at Kaiser Permanente. And I piloted our first intensive outpatient program for suicidal and homicidal patients. Mm-hmm. Um, And I had um, three career paths. Um, And all the while I was engaged in working with communities of color and underserved um, groups um, because it was very important to me. I'm very passionate about working for those who are suffering or underserved, where there's injustice and little or no resources. And I could very much um, relate to that, even though I'm a white female and I don't experience the daily microaggressions that my BIPOC brothers and sisters do, um, I do have high high sense of um, uh, care about that in our world and social justice. So I had um, I had the opportunity to re-specialize in organizational psychology. So I did I did the um, clinical work for seven years at Kaiser Permanente. Um, I did clinical practice outside of that, um, so spent a couple of decades in the field. Uh, And then I went into organizational psychology and did org development as a consultant outside of Kaiser Permanente and moved back um, to uh, this healthcare organization and worked for the senior most, one of the senior most leaders at our um, corporate headquarters Uh, and then was tapped to go to the Northwest region where I headed up um, organizational development and learning and development. And uh, in all of those roles, there was this connection to social justice, Mm -hmm. um, both internally and externally. And I was, um, you know, of course, very passionate about it. And then um, was asked to take the, um, the current role that I'm in, which is acting director for EID, And I serve on a couple of boards, Um, one uh, a local board and one is an international board that do address those kinds of issues. Awesome. So as you mentioned, you know, DE and I, the work is dealing with real people's lives and people's situations. And I feel like that's something that you can't really, you know, learn in a book. So what were your best resources that helped you along the way? Oh, it's always, always talking to people. Mm. finding out, you know, what are really the issues? Where are the gaps? What are the things that are working? What are the things that are not? And I think one of the the biggest challenges that we as a country have is, you know, what's great is this upswelling of interest to become allies and have uh, and and be in allyship. 
Um, I think the flip side of that is there's an upswelling of people who are reaching out to those people who are oppressed, white folks who are reaching out to people who are oppressed to ask them how to serve them. And so it's, it's, uh, it, it can be duly traumatic to have people sort of talk through their own um, microaggression and trauma experiences mostly at the hands of white folks. Um, and also a lot of, you know, my colleagues and family members and um, community members and friends who are BIPOC, um, they don't have uh, experience necessarily in best practices at, in an organization to apply to lift the workforce in terms of equity, inclusion, diversity, as well as um, culturally responsive care. Definitely. Um, so, you know, really talking with people, like studying the data, studying the research, looking at best practices, seeing who's doing what kind of work and how that really makes a difference. And always, always talking to uh, people about, you know, and getting and getting consistent feedback around, you know, where are we falling short? Where are we moving forward? How might we pivot um, and then and then putting a stake in the ground and getting senior leaders engaged so we do the work of the work that we need to do that's going to be the most impactful. Definitely. And um, following on from that, it seems like you spoke to a lot of people and you had a pretty good idea of the uh, field before you joined, but were there any lessons that you wish you would have known before starting in the field of DE&I? Well, I would say... Um, you know, the lessons that I, I wish that I would have learned before getting into healthcare in general mm. is that there is it's there's a vast depth and breadth of interrelated systems that are highly interdependent. Mm. And it's absolutely mind-boggling when you come into an organization that's so matrixed um, and so it's critical to map out, you know, where are those parts of the organization that are interdependent? Who are all of those people who are stakeholders who hold decision rights that you don't even know have decision rights often until maybe the 11th hour when, you know, you're, you're thinking, Oh, I'm going to come forward and I'm going to roll out this thing. And, uh, and there hasn't been um, effective, buy-in, understanding, you know, the awareness, understanding, buy-in, and uh, support, which is basic change management application. Um, and so it takes a lot more time up front, uh, but in the end, it's really a game changer to move any critical work forward, especially if you're, um, if you're in administration or, um, you know, trying to drive more uh, broad-based initiatives in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And um, thinking about the span of your career, what would you say was your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? <laughs> I know, it's an interesting this, question, this one. I love this question. I just yeah. love it because I have to say, you know, I've had several painful failures along the way. Um, and in retrospect, I was grateful for the learning that came along with it. And, and most of that was related to, you know, not not doing what I just said that, you know, one needs to do to move things forward. But, I, but I have to say, I would, I would um, name that there are two really, there were two consistent challenges that I had to get over. 
Um, the first was, I wish I would have asked for help. So because of that kind of imposter syndrome and thinking that I should know so much more because I didn't, I didn't have, you know, really good learning and I was ashamed and I was embarrassed to ask for help um, and saw it as a weakness. Um, but I had to shift that and look at it as a way to learn what I didn't know that I didn't know mm-hmm. and, and hold value for myself along the way. So, you know, that was one. And the second was stop comparing myself to others, mm-hmm. right? People have, I believe we all have incredible gifts and strengths and we build on those gifts and strengths based on, you know, what really is part of our personality, the way that our cognitive capacity and ability is and where our passions lie. And I love, there's this beautiful Hindu proverb that I love, and I'm going to read it. There's nothing noble about being superior to others. Mm. The true nobility is being superior to your previous self. Wow, that's so powerful and so poignant. Yes. And I wish I would have known that all along the way. Uh, and I would have gotten out of my own way quite a lot. And I, and I see that in a lot of other people as well. So when I mentor and coach people, um, those are some of the things that I help people with. Awesome. And um, you've been kind of dropping some really helpful pieces of advice throughout this whole call. But what would you say is one piece of advice that you would give somebody who is wanting to join the healthcare industry just like you? Yes, I would uh, recommend that people talk to those who are in healthcare, um, learn about the multitude of options that exist mm-hmm. operationally, administratively, clinically, and there's so much more. Um, you could have multiple careers in the context of the healthcare industry. And I would also say find an organization to work for that aligns with your personal values. I'm very mission driven. Um, and I work for an organization that is highly mission-driven and and servant-minded, and that's what keeps me engaged and passionate when things get tough, and that's what keeps others engaged and passionate too. Awesome. Um, And um, following on from that, I feel like a lot of people think they know a lot about the um, healthcare industry. It's a very common industry, and a lot of people know about it, but what is one common myth about the field or the industry that you would like to debunk? Yeah, I think one of the biggest is that there's only a few types of jobs, but there are so many healthcare jobs beyond traditional clinical delivery, of which there are many just in clinical care itself. But there are jobs in hospital and clinical administration um, and in any business, you know, there are uh, business functions that are part of what supports um, healthcare uh, operations. So finance, legal marketing, communications, quality strategy, business mm-hmm. development, um, insurance administration, and in the case of uh, KP, because we have an integrated care model um, where we don't, we don't charge for every single thing, but we work to, to move the care to um, preventative care, which serves uh, people so much better, mm-hmm. and we have much better outcomes as a result of that. Um, also, community health, human resources, which in and of itself has, you know, seven subspecialties and so much more. Awesome. Um, and to learn more about you, um, what have you read or listened to recently that's really inspired you? 
Yes. Um, right now, this week, um, I am listening to one of my favorite um, researchers. Her name is Mary Frances Winters of the mm-hmm. Winters Group. And I'm going through, um, it's a LinkedIn um, education course, and she brings neuroscientific evidence. So I was a neuropsych major in grad school. So I had two specialties, um, psychoanalytic psychotherapy and neuropsychology. So she brings that neuroscience evidence-based work in the EID space. And she's doing uh, a great um, series on cultivating cultural competence and inclusion. Um, And so I love to um, listen to and learn these things that, you know, it reinforces what I know that I believe that I know it checks. I check myself for the gaps um, that I didn't know that I didn't know. Uh, And then I learn uh, new things or new ways of articulating these things. And I also regularly read Yes, which is an online magazine, Diversity News. Um, We're part of the uh, advisory board daily. Um, The I'm a... um, member of the Society of Human uh, Resource Management, and I read Wired. It's one of my favorite magazines yes. and a few other internal feeds. Awesome. Um, that's great to hear. And uh, you mentioned a few um, people who have really helped you in your career so far, but I'm curious, who are three people in your life who have been the most influential to you? And sorry, it only had to be three. Yes. Well, the first that really came to my mind was my maternal grandfather, my mother's father. And he um, was a man who had um, a sixth grade education, but was one of the most intelligent um, and smart people I've ever met. And he showed my sisters and I unconditional love. And that made a huge difference in my life and our lives. Um, The second was um, and is my dissertation chair, Dr. Phil Erdberg. And he helped me with really learning to stay focused and also letting go of perfectionism. He, his nickname for me was Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility from um, Garrison, uh, Garrison Keeler's uh, Lady Home. No. Oh, gosh. Um, anyway, Garrison Keeler had a, had a radio show. And mm-hmm. so there was a, a little place. Uh, called uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility, and that was his nickname. And then the third purse, excuse me, the third person was my first boss at uh, Chevy Chase Bank in Bethesda, Maryland. And she practiced the um, competencies of a very effective leader. She was fun. She was authentic. She set a very high bar. Uh, she was all about learning, and she challenged me and us in a way that really drew on our strengths, um, and she grew us. It was it, She was tremendous. Well, that's so great to hear that you're surrounded by such supportive people in your life. And Thank then you. finally, um, to wrap up our conversation, what is one piece of advice that you wish you gave yourself at any point in your life? Yes, and I learned this later in life, so I wish I would have learned it before. Um, but I continue to work on this and I encourage others to as well. And that is to learn and practice resiliency Mm. and bring an equal balance of both parts of resiliency, which is one, take responsibility for what is ours to fix and to learn. Mm. And the second is give ourselves grace and forgiveness for being human. Mm. So 
you know, I, I, I would like for myself and I encourage for others to seek, to strive, to be in it with all your heart and you will have joy in the challenges and the failures and the forward moments movement, because that's, that's so critical to uh, head heart and hands and bring gratitude for all that you experience along the way um, as an opportunity to be humbled, to learn and to become a better version of who you are. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for that wonderful advice. And thank you so much for engaging in this amazing conversation with me. You are so welcome. I appreciate the time. All the best to you, Leila. You too. Bye-bye.